you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We are the show that tackles some tough topics sometimes. I think this has to be one of the toughest. I say that every week, though. I I really do. All of the things that we cover are difficult topics for the most part, but I do have a special place in my heart for the topic that we're talking about today. We've had this show before where we've talked about family courts, child custody, and domestic violence situations. Um, Right now, we get to talk with somebody who has lived it from a different angle from the people we usually interview. Jennifer Collins, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. Jennifer, I'm not going to try and and, and tell a lot about your story because I'm hoping that you will do that for us, but let's just say that you were one of the children who was taken away by a family court, and you are now an adult, and tell us how that happened to you, would you please? So, um, back in the, so I was born in, in 1985, and my father had always been abusive. That's just the way life was. My mother had a um, difficult childhood where she was abused as well, and um, she got trapped in this abusive marriage at a very young age, and she just, that's just the way her life was. It's never been, had never been any different, and my father had put my mother in the hospital three times within the first month of their marriage. So that what would you mean in the hospital? Uh, the, uh, because of physical nose, abuse? Dislocated shoulder, yep, stuff like that. So um, physical, he was physically violent, and um, usually it was just directed at my mother, and my mother was able to shield and protect those children from it. But when my, I have an older brother, Zachary, who's two years older than I am, and On one of the nights when my father was beating my mother, Zachary, who was four years old at the time, got out of bed to try and go intervene. And my father turned on Zachary and repeatedly slammed him into a wall, um, fracturing his skull. Uh, How old was Zachary? Zachary was four years old at the time. Uh And so my mother, who didn't have you know, the, I guess, self-worth based on her life experience to do something different because of her or to to stop what was happening to her, but she refused to let her children be abused. So she packed up, she was going to pack up us kids and leave, but she was also told by Child Protection Services, I believe someone from the hospital probably reported it, and they told my mother that if she didn't leave my father and take us children with her, that she would be charged with failure to protect. So she did what she was told. You know, she was young. She was 23. She did what she was told, and she left. But as soon as she did that, my father went into court and got visitation rights, right, access to the children. So my mother contemplated going back to him because at least when she was with him, she could shield us. But if she left him, she had to send the, us children unsupervised with, with him, and she didn't know what would happen then, and she, she wouldn't be there to protect us. But again, child protection told her that if she did that, they would come back and take us kids, us kids away, and my mother would be my mother would be charged with failure to protect. So the the focus was on her lack of acting, not not my father's abuse. So she left, and then the family court case started. And as long as family court was involved, child protection wasn't. So we had unsupervised visitation with my father at some points, and some points it was also supervised. Um, for a little while, briefly, and um, it just, it was 
a long process. And How old were you long, at this time, Jennifer? So when my mother initially left my father, I was two. Um, but, you know, so it, this is just kind of, we, I, there's bits and pieces where um, I don't know the exact dates when the supervised visitation happened sure. or when it was unsupervised. But, I mean, I have those, those records. But So when I was, you know, starting at the age of, of three or four, I, I really remember certain things. And, I, you know, my brother and I sometimes would refuse to go with our father because he was hurting us. And we were told that we weren't allowed to, to talk about those things or that we weren't allowed to refuse to go with him. And my mother, sometimes she, she would not send us. And I'd be so relieved that she didn't send us. And those were actually those, that's actually what started the um, switch of custody. So when I was um, and so it was 1992, a few days before Christmas, and um, custody had been reversed to my father having um, custody and my mother receiving supervised visitation with us because, according to the courts, even though they found that there was domestic violence, um, they knew that my father kicked us and strangled us and threatened to kill us. It's in the court transcripts. They knew this. They acknowledged that this happened. Yet my father's physical abuse was easier to monitor than the possible emotional harm that we could be subjected to by living with a woman who, and and possibly, and they said this as well, that possibly her um, her her difficulties were due to being so severely beaten by my father. But they didn't want, they couldn't, they, oh goodness, it's hard to word because <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. But her, um, her fear was interfering in our relationship with our father, supposedly, <laughs> as opposed to his actions being what was interfering in our relationship with him. We didn't want to see him because he was hurting us, he was beating us. And yeah. the thing is, the way the court system had set things up, the way that the court had set things up, the more that my brother and I said that we were being hurt, the more um, it was evident of what my mother was doing or how our our relationship was tarnished with our father because of her encouraging us to tell the truth as to what was happening to us. So, so uh, in other words, and, and I'm going to interrupt your story here, but I do want to hear, you know, as you go along, but we hear this so often, and I, I'm always um, kind of amazed that people who really are not involved in a case like this or who don't see it just think that this is some sort of aberration, that this really doesn't happen. There's something wrong. There's something faulty with your memory um, because, you know, I mean, the courts don't do this stuff, right? I mean, the courts, if they, you know, if your mom had really been a good mom, she wouldn't have lost custody of you. Um, and what you're saying is, no, uh, her being a good mom is basically what got you in trouble in the first place, right? With oh, the exactly. It's, her it's attempts really to protect her children were perceived as damaging her husband. Yep. And the courts punished her for that. Exactly. Am I saying it accurately? Okay. No, and that's, that's 100% correct. 
And so, uh, and you said something, I actually wrote it down, that the courts focused not on what she did, or the courts focused on what she did, not on what he did. Uh, Child Protection Services, yes, and and the courts Uh, as well. CPS did that? But the court did did as well. It was all about um, how she was responding. And and we do that as a culture. We put the blame on the mother as opposed or or the victim, right? Depending on the situation as as the responsible for what happened. And it makes it easier, I think, for people to handle things because it it puts a level of control on issues, right? So if she she lost her kids because of something she did as opposed to anybody could lose their kids because then that that yeah. means that we are all vulnerable to that being a possibility in our lives, right? Nobody wants to think of themselves as being a possible victim or being able to have that happen to them. So if we blame the victim, we take away that risk of ourselves potentially being able to be in that situation. You know, you're spot on. I, I remember talking with a, a woman once. Uh, um, there, there were several of us in a room. One woman was telling about her situation with um, domestic violence and she had been out of the situation for several years, and one of the women in the group said to her, oh, but you now that you look back, now that you look back, you can see there were there were warning signs with him, right? You, you could see it now, now that you look back. Right. And I piped up and I said, what you're saying by that, you, you, by, by stating that question, what you're saying is that, her problem with this violent man was something that she could or could not have foreseen. It was something that she could foresee. You're putting, you're, in other words, you're putting the blame on her. Right. You're not you saying, "Oh, seen, this horrible right? man, why did he do that?" You're saying, "Oh, you, why didn't you see it then?" And I yeah. said, "You know what that does basically is say it protects you." It protects you because if it's something that she, if you can pin it on something she either did or she didn't do, then you're safe because you're smart enough to either do or not do it. Right. And I think it doesn't come, that that, that reaction does not come from a, I used to think it, it came from a, a, a horrible attitude or a bad place. I don't think it does. I think it's a kind of a self-protective thing. If we can right. blame that victim, we're safe because we are going to be smarter, more aware, um, you know, whatever, pick pick your your verb um than that woman was so then shoo good we're safe um and it sounds like what you're saying is the same thing happens here in this kind of a scenario well um, i think that, that oh sorry go ahead no no go ahead i i mean i do think that a lot of times that is the underlying feeling but in my case it was it's different it's not that um in my case, it wasn't my case, it was my parents' case. <laughs> I always have attorneys reminding me of that. I was not a party, um, which is... Oh, please, really? Really? But that people say that to you? You are this child that's being bounced around and forced to live with somebody who hits you and abuses you, but it's not your case? Oh, yeah, okay, fine. Well, legally, <laughs> legally that, is, that, is part, that is how it is in the court system, and, and that's part of the issue, right? I wasn't at all represented. I, I mean, there wasn't a, a guardian ad litem who was supposed to be representing my best interest, who, who most definitely yeah. did not do that. But it's it was about uh, my father and my mother, right? They're fighting for custody. They're supposedly fighting for their wants, where my mother couldn't even fight for her wants because she was too busy trying to fight to protect us. 
never mind yeah. talking about what she wanted. Um, she just wanted her children to, to be safe. And I well, think and not only was she fighting the court system, she had to fight CPS at the same time. And, we, and again, we hear that as well, you know, that CPS is saying, we'll take your kids away if you don't get them out of there and keep him away from them. But the courts are saying, oh, you keep, you keep him away from them, you are, that's custodial inter- interference, that's parental alienation, right. and we'll take your kids away from you. And yeah, then, and then you, you hear people blaming a woman for staying, you know, in, in a relationship with an abusive man. Well, it sounds to me like that's kind of a smart thing to do if you want to protect your kids. And, I, you know, I would never advise someone to stay in, a, in an abusive relationship. Um, but I do think we need to respect the choices that are made because sometimes staying with an abusive partner is a safety plan in and of itself, right? If you're with them, you have a little bit more control over the situation. Because just because well, you, you can, leave an abusive you can protect the children. You're there. Yeah. To, I mean, even physically, you can stand in front of them. Um, exactly. If you're not there and he's with those kids all by, the, by himself, there's no one monitoring. Now, you said that you had your father had sometimes supervised visitation with you. There was um, a, a short period of time when this that happened, yes. Okay. And did that work okay? Or uh, clearly well, it didn't last for a long time if he got full custody. Um, w- what is it about the supervised visitation that they decided wasn't worth keeping uh, as a procedure for you kids? So they determined, based on how my brother and I interacted with my father during supervised visitation, that clearly we loved him and we weren't afraid of him because we loved our father, which we did, right? Children love their parents, even if they're bad parents. And we did love our father, and we wanted wanted him in our life. We just didn't want him to hurt us. And so in supervised visitation, it actually gave us that opportunity to have that relationship in a safe space. Although, you know, at the same time, all my father needed to do was put his hand on my shoulder, and I knew, right, I knew to, to stop or to behave. Or, and it was something, it was, he still had that control, even though others couldn't see it. Um, oh, yeah. It's just, it just the look. the look. Don't forget just right. the look. Just yeah. the look. So, but the thing is, is that because we were pleasantly interacting and happy to be able to to visit our father and to have that time because um, also he my father wasn't interested in us children um, it, we were just a means for him to control our mother so we didn't actually have that relationship with him and with outside of supervised visitation so we got attention from him which was you know also nice children want to spend time with their their parents and but because because they saw that clearly we loved our father, which we did, and that he was he knew how to behave, he could behave for an hour, right? That's not hard. Um, that it was not an issue. They didn't see any violence, which <laughs> that's the whole point of supervised visitation. So he was. And how often do be, violent people be uh, act out when there are witnesses in front of you know? I mean, exactly. It, it, it just defies logic. I mean, that whole scenario and the assumptions made based on that scenario defy to- logic totally, and yet this was a court-supervised program that you were involved in. Uh, it, 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 it is, I, I'm dumbfounded. You know, I'm just dumbfounded by that. So I interrupted you. 
please go on. Uh, how did it come about that um, your father got full custody? So, yeah, I mean, the more the more that my mother tried to protect us, and the more that my mother said that he was hurting us, the more she was considered to be the, and this was the thing back then, the unfriendly parents, um, and interfering in our relationship with our father. So that eventually um, is what started the the parental alienation syndrome was used as um, the reason for reversing custody. Yeah, parental alienation was invented by this wacko doctor um, back in the '80s, and, okay, and he's he's also the he was also the the same man that invented the Man Boy Love Association. So that gives you a clue about this person. And um, he came up with this theory that if children didn't want to see their father, clearly the only reason would be because somebody has poisoned them against their father unfairly. Couldn't be they don't want to see their father because they don't want to get hurt. Couldn't be that they don't want to see their father because they're afraid of their father. Clearly the only reason that the children would not want to go see their father is if somebody had poisoned them against their dad. Did I explain that accurately? Yes, yes you did. I mean I don't <laughs> want to go into details, but just by in in his in his work he talks about how um sex with a child is okay. And oh yeah, healthy. he was a wacko. So just to give, he, he really give was an a idea wacko. of what this man was like, yeah. And he he made a, an extraordinary living. I actually did a report on him once when I was in grad school, and oh. he made an extraordinary living by coming up with this theory of parental alienation. And he traveled the country, being an expert witness, and testified in courts uh, all throughout the '80s and the early '90s yeah. about how horrible mom was, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and courts bought it. I mean, here was a guy with, you know, Ph.D. after his name. He must know what he's talking about, although if you uh, really delved into his uh, biography, you would see that he actually rarely practiced, um, you know, as any kind of a counselor. Um, He just came up with these wacko theories, and he was probably, you know, uh, dealt with a lot of... of, He probably dealt with a lot of issues that, that we don't see today, and yet... With this parental alienation theory, um, he called it parental alienation syndrome, mm-hmm. and uh, it's stuck. And there are official organizations today. There are, are guardians ad litem. There are judges. There are attorneys. There are child advocates who buy into this parental alienation. Now, they, they, there was big flack about calling it a syndrome, which implies some sort of diagnostic, you know, um, um, criteria, uh, and so in the last few years, they've stopped calling it parental alienation syndrome and just started calling it parental alienation, um, and it, it it clings. It hangs on that the only reason kids wouldn't want to go see that, that father is because they've been poisoned by some evil mother against the kids. I, I mean, it just, uh, every time I hear about that, it just makes me, makes my head spin. <laughs> It's, it, it is. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, because I mean, who would want to go with somebody that hurts you? I mean, that right. seems more logical to me. But I think that it's so much easier. Again, talking about people's comfort levels, right? Why victim blaming happens? 
it's so much easier to believe that mom's crazy than that dad would do something like this to his kids, right? When we're talking about physical abuse or sexual abuse, it makes people uncomfortable, as it should, right, that people could do this to their own children. But instead of doing something about it, it's easier to think that, well, no, it's not happening. Um, It must be mom. And also when you oftentimes meet these um, child abusers, whether it be physical or sexual abuse or or domestic violence perpetrators, they're charming, right? They seem like nice, normal people. They don't wear, um, you know, a sign that says all the horrible things that they do behind closed doors. So it's, it's... it's really hard sometimes to see that, oh, this really nice guy who, who I see at work or who lives next door could do such things, especially because they're usually skilled manipulators. That's how they get their control over their, their victims. And it's, um, it's, it's sometimes hard for people to acknowledge the truth um, that's going on. Yeah, it, it really is. Please continue with your story about you and your brother. How old were you when the courts decided that your mom was not the fit parent that your father was? I was seven, and it was a couple days before Christmas when um, custody was reversed. And initially, um, during the transfer, actually, the initial transfer when my father got custody, it was was the worst day of my life. Um, Because not only were they... They, well, they were ripping me. They literally ripped me out of my mother's arms. I was, I was seven. I was crying hysterically, clinging on to my mother as they pried my fingers off of her dress and, and literally ripped me away from her, basically dropping me as I was kicking and screaming as they were brought me over to my father. And, um, you know, I, I, I was saying that he hurts me. He hurts my brother. Um, you know, mommy helped me. And... The guardian ad litem whispered, I know, which he did know. I told him, you know, it's not even, this, is, this isn't one of those cases where they didn't know or that the children didn't say anything because, unfortunately, there are so many children who, who don't have the opportunity to speak up or to tell someone what's happening to them. And I did. We, we told people. They knew and they still handed us over to him. And my mother, I wasn't allowed to see my mother for what felt like an eternity. I don't know exactly how long it was, but um, the courts wouldn't allow us to see her so that we could adjust to our new living situation, and us seeing our mother would have been <laughs> interfering There always with that. seems to be that component of punish the mother. It's not bad enough that you choose to believe the abuser, but you have to punish the mother. And us. Uh, that's, I mean, that's the way it we appears were, to me in these court cases. We, the children, were punished. You ripped us away. They ripped us away from our mother. Which, even if you, even if we weren't going to live with an abusive parent, um, just ripping a child away from their primary caregiver is horrifically traumatic. Um, it's one of the aces in the you know being separated yep. from from your parents and. Then they so they separated us from her and handed us over to the man who we were terrified of. So, uh, okay. So, how long was it before you could see your mother again? And and that must be devastating for your mother because she's powerless, 
and why is she leaving this person anyway? Because she's powerless to change him, and now she's powerless even to protect her children. That must have been absolutely devastating for your your mother. And she, you know, she did everything she was supposed to. I, I now as an adult have gone through the court records. She, she did everything the court asked her to do. There were experts. We, we saw the um, Boston Children's Hospital had a, a team of experts led under Dr. Eli Newberger to establish whether or not child abuse did occur. And they, we saw them, and they did their investigation and they found that abuse did happen right everybody knew so my mother did everything the courts told her to do and still um we ended up or my my father ended up getting custody i I don't people don't people do not believe that this happens and it happens so often so often i i um are you familiar with dr joan meyer's research um i am yeah, and she was on the show a few months ago talking about her latest study, and there were different criteria, but basically, I mean, there's this, she did this comprehensive study of courts and custody, and if you are an abuser, you have a much greater chance of getting full custody of your children than if you're not an abuser and you go for custody. I mean, it's it's just, uh, and I, I hope I'm paraphrasing that correctly, but the, the net effect of it is that if you're an abuser, you have a whopping likelihood that you can get full custody of your children, even if you're well, abusing them, if you choose to go fight for it. And, and it, it is, is staggering that. that this occurs. And your situation happened in the in the 90s, but it's still happening. It's it still is. happening. Over um, two decades later, and it's still happening. Just as, just as bad. So is this just because, I mean, is this the patriarchal system? Um, we, we, the, we, the powers that be, that the, choose to believe the man's version of something rather than the woman's version. You know, I, I used to do some talks about uh, family court, and I always said that it appeared to me that family court operated, you're never going to find it in writing, but it appeared to me that family courts operated under three premises. One is just because he hurts her, the mother, doesn't mean he's going to hurt the kids or that it will hurt them. The other, which has been disproven, um, the other one is that um, uh, children have to have a father in their lives. I think that children should have both parents in their lives if they're good parents, but if you have a bad parent, why do you have to have that person in your life? Um, And then the third premise that the courts seem to operate under, in my opinion, is she lies. (laughs) Whatever she says, she's lying. I, it just appears that way, and I know I'm going to get emails from court pe- people and court advocates saying, "Oh, you're so harsh. That's not true." But that's the way it appears. Well, they can email me instead, and I'll t- <laughs> they want to say that it's not true. <laughs> yeah. So you know, that's what I have seen over the over the years in looking at these family courts. And of course, some courts are not like that, but there are so many there are. So, um, how many years did you live with your father, and and how did it how did that go? Did the abuse continue? I lived with him for eighteen months and eight days, and yes, the abuse continued because part it's 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 actually if it wasn't so horrific and such a horrible thing, it's it's a pretty brilliant plan. The more that my mother spoke up about abuse, or the more that us kids spoke up about abuse, the more my mother was punished. 
So all he needed to do was to continue to, to hit us so that we'd say that he was hurting us, so that my mother would be kept away from us. We eventually had, I don't know how long it took before we were able to see my mother again, but it was a supervised visitation, and we weren't allowed to talk about um, any abuse. So I said that he's still hurting us, and the the visitation supervisors told me that I'm not allowed to talk about those things anymore. And I showed up to visitation once, and my mother gave me a hug. We were only allowed to give her a hug, hello, and goodbye. Otherwise, we weren't allowed to, to hug or touch during oh, the visitation. Oh, my gosh. You couldn't sit I, on her lap or anything? Oh, no, no. I got scolded for doing that. Um, so, basically, you were doing a prison visit. I'm sorry? So, basically, mm-hmm. you were doing a prison visit you know, um, <laughs> like you know, the, on all the TV shows where they go visit a prisoner and they're not allowed to touch, you know. I mean, yeah. that's that's these, pretty indicative of how the, the system viewed your mom, isn't it? And and there was no no allegations about wrongdoing on the part of my mother. Everyone knows she was a good parent who loved us, Um so I don't, it does, doesn't make any sense. But they were trying to break that bond that we had with her. We were supposed to accept that, you know, the new way life was, which was that we lived with our father and we needed to, to work on accepting that. And that because we still craved our mother and we wanted to live with her, um, they needed to break that, I think, somehow in, in their mind. But I showed up wow. to visitation once with, um, so my mother gave me a hug, and I said, ow. Right? I, I, um, it hurt. And so, of course, they were all over that. They they were checking to see what had happened. And um, I lifted up my shirt and showed them that I had bruises and welts down my back. And um, they gasped. You know, they, they gasped at the sight of it. And asked me what happened, and I said that my father had caused the injury. And they told me to pull down my shirt, and they told me that I know I'm not allowed to talk about those kinds of things. Oh, my gosh. And were there any repercussions about that, any further investigation, anything? Um, I think that at some point someone came out several weeks later, and I didn't have any bruises on my body at that time because, you know, they heal after well, several, several weeks. weeks later. Um, and so nothing was there, nothing um, nothing was found, obviously. Wow. Okay, well, you said, and, and again, I, you know, I, I'm, I've, this must be hard for you to say this. It must be hard for you to keep telling this story over and over, but it needs to be told, doesn't it? Well, I think um, for me, my abuse, I was protected when I was nine. Nobody's ever hit me or hurt me ever again since I was nine years old. And most children don't have that luxury. Most children have to wait out their sentence until they're 18 years old and yeah. are adults before they can get that freedom. And 18 so how years did of abuse get... does a lot, lot of damage. So how did the, your father's custody finally end? Did somebody actually take action because of the abuse or was it some other reason that that you went back to your mom so my brother and i um we told our mother because so we had visitation supervised visitation in a visitation center but eventually we were allowed to see her 
outside. So there was a, a visitation supervisor who came with, and we, we could go to her apartment or go out, you know, for dinner and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And um, we started writing notes, and when we hugged our mother, we'd stick them in her pocket, or we left notes in the refrigerator um, for her. And, you know, we told her that we were going to run away. And I was nine at the time, and Zachary was 11. We were much too young to be running away. <laughs> but And, and that, that scared my mother, um, but we told her that we were doing it, and um, did if if... Was she going to come with us or, you know, if she was going to uh, protect us or, or get us again? Were we going to live with her again? We had all these questions. We didn't understand what was going on. And um, my mother told us to wait. She was very afraid that we were, we were that other bad things could happen to us if we ran away at such, mm-hmm. a, such a young age. And, I mean, rightfully so. And so my mother had been planning to run and so in June, uh, we told her, so we told her, we gave her a deadline and said that we were running away July 1st. She had until July 1st. And June 30th, um, we got a call from her and she asked us to meet her. And we went and we met her at uh, the video store down the street. And, and so, by the way, how this was able to happen is that uh, my brother and I were, again, 9 and 11, but we were left home alone all day during the summer. My father had no interest in us. It, it was having custody was just a means to punish my mother. But so we went down to the video store and we got in the car and we drove away and we, my mother ran with us. She was um, later charged with um, or accused of parent, parental abduction and kidnapping. And we, we um, were on the run for a while in the United States, and eventually, my mother was actually trying to go to New Zealand in the footsteps of Elizabeth Morgan. So Elizabeth Morgan had a daughter who was being sexually abused by her father, and she, Elizabeth, the mother, managed to get her to New Zealand, and she left her there with the grandparents, the the maternal grandparents. And eventually, once once the girl was found, um, the United States attempted to get her extradited, the child extradited, but New Zealand um, did not send her back. They offered her a sanctuary. So we were trying to go to New Zealand. My mother was hoping that they would protect us as well, Um, but we couldn't get there directly, and we ended up having um, a layover in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, we didn't have, you know, proper travel documentation and stuff, so we were arrested there, and they were going to deport us back to the United States. And my mother, you know, just started asking for all these different things, and eventually she asked for asylum. And, and the man laughed, and he said, do you want asylum? He said, do you know what that process is? He said, you'll live in a refugee center. And she said, that's fine, whatever, whatever we can take, you know, we'll live wherever it is. And he asked, they interviewed us kids and asked us, you know, what we wanted to, that we, if we wanted to stay and that it's scary in a bad place and in the refugee centers. And, um, but, at, you know, we said, when they said that they were going to send us back to the United States, we started crying. I said, no, please don't send us back. And so we started the process. We lived in refugee camps for 
a couple years, and eventually we received asylum in the Netherlands on the basis of um, domestic violence. Wow. Wow. So you were safe at that point. You were safe. We were, yes. So now you're an adult. Mm -hmm. How did you get back here? So part of the agreement of, or part of the understanding of our asylum was it only lasted as long as it was kept secret because they couldn't guarantee that once um, the United States found out where we were that they wouldn't attempt extradition and that that would be a whole whole messy process, which it was. Um, but we, we kept everything quiet. We lived in secrecy for, goodness, about 18 years. Um, the whole initial goal was just to wait until I at least turned 18 because we knew that if I was under 18, I would be sent. I'd be sent back to oh, live yeah. with my father. Yeah. We were found. And even if you were 17 and a half, he would make you go live with him. <laughs> yep. Well, and that's, yeah. those are some of those cases that, that we see are, are still happening, right? Children who are almost yeah. 18 still have to live with the person who's abusing them. And we were found by the FBI in, oh, goodness, no, my years. I think it was 2007. Oh, no, that doesn't. Oh, goodness, I, I I was 21 when we were found, I think. So, um, and they did. Why were they still to, looking for you at that age? Well, we were still missing children. Um, uh-huh. Right, and my mother was still a criminal who, or a, a supposed criminal who who kidnapped her kids. Um, so they were looking for us as victims. Um, but not victims of my father, but victims of my mother, which is absurd because she's the one who protected us. But so we, our when faces the were FBI up on. Found them, were the, did they send you back here, or did, did did what did they do to your mom? So they attempted to get her extradited. Uh, luckily, the Netherlands stood up for us and and refused to extradite my mother underneath the asylum protection, and um, the United States you know, took the Netherlands to basically world court kind of thing. It's a long, longer story, but the Netherlands was able to um, not extradite my mother. But in in the beginning, we didn't know that that was going to happen. So I thought that my mother was going to be extradited and sent to jail, and she would have been sent to jail for for a while for, for kidnapping. Wow. So I started a um, emailing campaign, and I emailed anybody who I thought would be a potential help in this situation. And eventually we found an amazing attorney, Alan Rosenfeld, who reached out to us. Um, I guess just because everybody kept forwarding my emails to him, asking if there was something he could do. And so he worked with my mother and eventually got the, the charges dropped. My mother pled guilty to one contempt of court. And um, she had to show up back to Minnesota to um, for her plea. And she said, which I thought was pretty great, she said she, she pleads guilty to contempt of court. And she said because she does indeed have contempt for the court that failed to protect her children. Oh, so, I like that. Yeah. yeah, it was great. And so she got 40 hours of probation, which she did at a domestic violence organization. <laughs> Wonderful. 
Wonderful. That, so now is she in the United States too, and is your brother? She, yep, she is. We we all moved back, um, and it's it's been a a, a long, crazy, crazy ride. But we are we're here and we're doing well um, despite everything that has happened. But my mother. Do you have any relationship or contact with your father? No, I don't. I spoke to him once when the FBI initially found us because I was in contact with the um, the prosecutor on the case of on my mother's case, and she wanted me to um, she offered initially offered me victim services uh, as a victim of kidnapping. and I said, well, i'll take I'll speak to your victim services, but as a victim of child abuse at the hands of my father, not not the hands of my mother, and that wasn't okay. And she, when I, when she realized that I wasn't going to be any help for her case and prosecuting my mother, my father was deemed the um, main victim of my mother's crime. And he, she had told me that he wanted my mother prosecuted to the fullest extent. And so I called him once and told him, asked him to please not push for my mother to be uh, prosecuted. And if he just leaves us alone, we'll leave him alone. And he yelled at me and told me that I ruined his life. Um, Bear in mind, I was nine last time I had any contact with him, but that I completely ruined his life and he was going to make my mother pay um, one way or another. And he said an over, over her dead body kind of thing is she coming back to the United States. After you came back, was there any interference from him after this uh, the legal stuff was resolved? Was there any interference from him? Did he try to do anything to you or your mom i haven't I haven't had any contact with him. We just we've stayed away yeah yeah Wow, thank you for sharing that. I know that has to be painful, no matter how many times you say it and tell it um and uh, thank just... you for sharing it. I feel like no matter how many times I tell it, there's no graceful way. I never get through the story in a in a fully coherent manner. But, but you did you did fine, and um, you know, and I, and again, I I know that that's not easy. Uh, so thank you for sharing it because I think it does help people understand what this situation's all about. But now I want to talk about something a little bit more positive, and that is courageous kids. Yes. Like many people who've been victimized, mm-hmm. you decided to take this experience and make it so that it's better for other people. And you saw the promotion that I sent out for the show where, you know, we've all seen the, the, the scenes on the news where some child is clinging desperately to mom and the Child Protective Services comes and rips the child away from mom and it just wrenches. It just wrenches anybody who has has ever raised children, anybody who has a heart. I mean, it is just wrenching, gut-wrenching to see those pictures but then we can turn off the dial. We can move on. And it's important, I think, for all of us to understand that the story doesn't you, – you, for, for the victims of these, these scenarios, it's not as easy as changing the dial and turning off the TV. It is a lifetime. And you decided to take this horrific experience and do something with it that might help other people, uh, as many victims of, of outrageous experiences do. And you created Courageous Kids. Tell us about that, will you? Oh, I didn't actually create Courageous Kids. I inherited it. Oh, you didn't? Somebody else had, I'm sorry. Um, created it. Yes. 
Who did? Uh, so Connie Valentine and Karen Anderson are the Of the course, I've spoken with Connie Valentine, yes. I didn't yes. realize that, that. Okay, so you work with Courageous Kids, or you found Courageous Kids. Tell me about your connection with Courageous Kids. So um, it, it initially started, Connie Valentine approached me and gave me a Courageous Kids medal when I initially, um, when I first came back to the United States. Um, I was only over here for a visit, and I, I spoke at a conference um, I came back with my mother when she uh, when she had to make her um, appearance at court, and uh, Connie Valentine offered me the Courageous Kids Medal, and I was still trying to have my voice heard. I think that, um, as as for many many victims, you know, so often you're silenced, and um, especially child victims, right? You're you're silenced, and nobody listens, and you're not your side of the story isn't relevant. You know, we talk about he said, she said when it comes to custody cases, but there's another voice there that's a very important voice to listen to. And I still wanted, I still wanted to be heard. And I wanted people to understand the injustice that occurred. And um, I also started, I, I started receiving emails from other kids who this had happened to or other young adults. And, People who weren't as um, comfortable speaking out publicly, um, which I completely understand. It's it hasn't always been a, a it's it's definitely not a um, something you want to be known for, right? But I just I couldn't. I'd always I I just I couldn't let this. Let it be. I was. I initially thought that what happened to my brother and me was just that we fell through the cracks of the justice system. But then when I learned that this is happening, um, that it happens so often, and that it's still happening, you know, 20 to 30 years later, is just astounding, and it's not okay, and it's not right. And I was protected, right? I had my mother, and my mother against all odds, managed to to protect my brother and me. And so many kids don't have that. And so many women don't have that opportunity to protect their kids, no matter how much they'd want to, right? The fact that my mother was able to get asylum in another country is a fluke. <laughs> but so there's, there's these children who, who need to wait it out until they're 18. And for some, that just means that they have the emotional scars for the rest of their lives. And for others, it means that they end up getting murdered by their abusive parent or that they take their own lives because they just can't handle it anymore. And somebody needs to speak up for those for those kids and for the kids who are so what is living the this situation right now. Yeah. So what is the, the, the goal of Courageous Kids? Is it is it a place for... Um, <clears throat> victims like you to um, um, find um, similar, you know, find uh, uh, comfort, or is it to advocate, or what? What is the, the the purpose of Courageous Kids? What what does the organization hope to do? Um, there's a couple of different components. So one, it's a place for um, people who have had these experiences to get support, to have their voices heard. And um, for those who are interested, have their voices heard publicly. So unfortunately, the way that 
people seem to get interested in these issues is by hearing that personal story. So adding that that faith and that experience to the advocacy is is a an important component. And it's also that um, we work to try and help children who are in these situations now. So children who are being failed by the system and unable to get protection um, through the court system, we try to help them either through um, connecting them with the right resources or um, I've had some kids who have reached out to me after they've run away um, and to, you know, make sure at least that, that they're safe and to help them in, in certain ways. What about, it's so difficult in these cases, in any case of intimate partner violence and, and family court, it is so difficult for, um, it, it is so difficult to get representation if you don't have money. Yeah. Right, that's how the um, the, the abusive partner usually is the one who controls all the financial resources, and then they have the money to hire the best attorney, leaving the protective parent without any funds to to defend herself or her children. Yeah, exactly. So if I'm interested in Creative Kids, where do, what, how do I contact them? How do I get hold of, of someone there? Uh, you can email Courageous Kids at hot, uh, Courageous Kids Network at Hotmail.com. Courageous Kids Network at Hotmail.com. What's down the road for you? And, and I, I, before we answer that question, what about your brother? He, is, he's, he's back in the States now. Is he also he involved is. in Courageous Kids, or is, did he take a different route? He, he helps me with technical stuff when I, when I ask him, but he... Um, <laughs> Can I have his number, please? <laughs> <laughs> but he's not as comfortable um, speaking about our experience, and I think that um, part of that is because he he did re- receive the harder end of of the abuse. He protected me and stepped in front of me even. Um, so, and I think it's also um, well. There's there's a lot of different components. I think too for the different experience being uh, a girl in that situation or a young boy. He he still feels. Sometimes that there was something he could have done, even though even oh, though there wasn't. Yeah. Um, do either of you have relationships, or are you planning on having children, or did this? How did this affect you? This whole experience affect you and your future, personally. I um, yeah. I mean, we're we are doing really well. I mean, I think that. If somebody didn't know our personal story, you couldn't tell, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like our scars are visible um, anymore. The emotional scars will carry, but we've had a, a long time to heal. As I said, we were protected, um, and and with by that, your mom, had, yes, by my mom, not by the justice system, but yeah. we've had time to heal, and we've been through therapy, and we've had that support and that that safe life to. Um, to to be resilient. Mm-hmm. What advice would you have for families who are going through similar experiences today? You know, twenty years uh, later. 
do you think the situation has improved? Is it easier now is it to, to get help, or is it still just as hard? Oh, I think it's still just as hard, um, unfortunately, right? I mean, that's such a disheartening thing to say, but no, I don't, I don't think it's improved, not at all. Um, no. When I see that the exact same thing ha- that happened to my brother and I is happening today, it's, it's horrific. And it's, it's tough because every I, – I, I don't want to give – I wouldn't be able to give blanket statement advice, um, I just, depending on the case, that wouldn't be, I couldn't responsibly do that. But the thing that I would say is that for everybody involved, you know, if a child says that they're being hurt, listen to them. Children don't make up these stories. Um, Children, I mean, research supports that false allegations from children are basically non-existent. And so if children are being hurt, we need to protect them. And that the core advocates and and um, fam- the family court actors and judges and everybody involved needs to uh, make sure that they're doing their job and protect children and and maybe they think that nothing's going to happen but children grow up and they um, they eventually speak out so there should be more accountability in the family court system and that's something that we are working on um, that's something that actually Barry Goldstein, who I know has been on your show, is working on with the um, Safe Child Act, which is fantastic. Yeah. And he's doing some well, really there are wonderful several, work on that front. Yeah, there are several people who are advocating for some solutions, um, you know, or at least to make way. It, it's so discouraging, though, when you realize that, you know, 20, 30 years later, think, you know, it, it just it's just like... I, sometimes, and I, again, I'm going to get the emails, but I, I just want to take judges and shake them, you know, <laughs> I... I do. It's like, really, really, you are so isolated, you know, uh, from what's happening in the day-to-day world. And, of course, we see that generally in our society. I mean, if if I haven't exp- – I, I, we see everyone's experiences through our own lenses. If I have never experienced this kind of control, if I've never experienced this kind of abuse, then I tend to be skeptical when somebody else says it's happening to them. I – you know, I, I mean, it, it, that's just the way we are. Um, and it seems like so many judges, I, 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 I spoke with a family court judge, and I said, tell me, please, what goes through a family court judge's mind when there's two people in front of you, one of whom has been a protective parent and one of whom has domestic violence documented in his background, and you give custody to the one with domestic violence. And she said to me, you have to understand that that the woman is, she's frantic and she's just not in control. And he is, is in control and in charge. And so if the abuse isn't that bad, we'll give it to him because we'll give custody to him because he, he clearly can handle it. And I'm and thinking he, this woman has absolutely no clue what abusers do. It's all about power and control, you know. Exactly. And and he's like like you said, right? He's likable, he presents well. She's yes. frantic or quote unquote hysterical. Um and how could you not be, right? If your child was being abused and you were able to keep it together, you'd get blamed for that as well, right? The mothers who don't cry enough or they exactly. cry too much and you can never get it right. But no. the thing is no. another thing is is that depending on the judge, right, he doesn't seem scary. Um my father back then was, like, my parents were young. My father, compared to the judge, was a boy. 
Um, he was He's short, and he's not intimidating to the judge, but to us he was terrifying. So I think that's also something they need to keep in mind, that just because he doesn't seem scary to you doesn't mean he's not scary to someone else. So what's down the road for you? Where are you going to go next? What kind of work do you do? What kind of work do you want to do? Um, and and what's in the future for, for you, Jennifer? So I have decided to dedicate my career to trying to protect children in these kinds of situations. Um, and I have worked at... I've done a lot of different work with domestic violence organizations, and I am now uh, the prevention coordinator at a coalition against domestic and sexual violence. So I am I'm continuing on the pathway to try and um, make things better, at least as much as I can, and I am also going to continue my work with the Courageous Kids Network so that, um, you know, the children who aren't being protected through the system, um, at least have some support. Yeah, yeah. How uh, how large is the Courageous Kids Network? How ma- about how many people do you know? It it varies, um, and and the you know the the level of activity um, of an individual really changes. Initially, I think people want to get heard and want to have their support, but then also sometimes it's just too painful to keep talking about these things or to stay involved, and especially, like I said, especially for those kids who have had to wait out the system, um, that's a lot of abuse, and that's, that, that takes time, and sometimes you just want to move on with your life and try to be normal. Yeah, I understand, and I appreciate that. Unfortunately, we're thankful for people like you who are willing to talk about this because it's such a hidden thing. Nobody wants to acknowledge that it's anything other than a little... <laughs> aberration when in fact it happens all the time it happens all the time um again please give us uh, some sort of contact information if somebody would like to get hold of you or learn more about courageous kids what would they do uh just email me uh courageous kids network at hotmail.com if you want to get information about courageous kids or if you'd like to have any kind of if you have any questions for me you can also reach me there and since I'm one of those people that knows nothing happens without a budget to make it happen, do you do you take contributions, financial contributions? So we do, but as um, so, the Courageous Kids Network is not its own nonprofit, but we are umbrellaed underneath the California Protective Parent Association. So if anybody would like to make a contribution to the Courageous Kids Network, um, please send it to uh, CPPA and then identify that you'd like it to be allocated to the Courageous Kids. Okay. Jennifer, did I miss in asking you anything about this, this horrific history that you are so courageously battling against? Did I, did I leave out anything in my questioning that you think should be important for listeners to know? I think we, we covered I mean, we could, there's so many different aspects to this that we could keep talking about it for hours, about all the, the system failing, failure. But I think that, you know, just believe children. Thank you. Jennifer Collins, thank you so much for being with us and sharing your story. Thank you for letting us hear about what has happened in your life and to help us understand how that's happening in other people's lives. Greatest Kids Network, Jennifer Collins, thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways.